As Brad mentioned, my name is Billy the Mountain Man Meenan, and I work with the senior high students. Our passage today is in James chapter 5. We're going to be reading verses 7 through 11. And I'll go ahead and just give you a heads up. The sermon is going to be on patience and contentment. Um, But good news, it's probably not going to be a real long one, so you won't have to be super patient to listen through it all. (laughs) Patience is a virtue. Patience is a virtue that does not come very naturally to me. Patience is a virtue that does not come very naturally to my two-year-old son. Patience does not come naturally to the high school students I work with. I'm willing to wager that patience and contentment doesn't come naturally to many of us. That's why I entitled the sermon today, The Gift of Patience. It's not something that naturally happens within us. And this is not a condition that's unique to us in this age and time. This is a problem all throughout history. In fact, to start all the way back to the beginning with Adam and Eve. We knew Adam and Eve were in the garden, and God says, I give you everything except for that one tree. Just wait, that tree's not for you. But they were deceived. And they said, we don't want to wait. We want to be like God now. And they ate of the fruit, which caused sin, which caused the world that we live in to be filled with chaos and destruction and fear and uncertainty. But God didn't leave it there. He said, don't worry. I've got a plan. And that plan was to send the Messiah. Jesus. And Jesus was going to come to live the life that we couldn't live, to die the death we so justly deserved in order to reconcile us to the right relationship with God. And we trace this all through our history. Look at the history of the Israelites in the Old Testament. The Old Testament tells us that the Israelites were God's chosen people. They were his very chosen people. And he made promises to them. He says, I have a plan. But yet they continue to, to show a lack of trust. They, they continue to place their trust in other places and in idols and other countries. And God would allow for those nations to take them over and to put them into slavery and persecution. And they would cry out to God. And they'd say, fix this. Fix this. And God would say, not yet. Be patient. I have a plan. And we see that going throughout. And then we get to the New Testament. And we see God takes his disciples. And his disciples keep saying to Jesus, when are you going to make this kingdom? Declare this kingdom. Start taking over. Make this kingdom here on earth. And Jesus said, not just yet. Be patient. My father has a plan. And then on the night as he's getting close, the time was drawing near for Jesus to be taken. And the guards come to take him away. And Peter, his his disciple, pulls out a sword and he begins to attack. He acts out violently. Jesus brings him back. He says, not yet. Be patient. My father has a plan. And then we look at the persecution that the Christians in the first and second century faced. If we looked at all the letters that are being written to them, they're saying, not yet. Be patient. Our father has a plan. And this is where we come to this situation in James chapter 5. James is writing this letter to a large group of Christians who are spread out very geographically. They are not in their homeland. They are not surrounded by people that they know very well. 
And so this is probably written to a bunch of small house churches, maybe even underground churches, because they were being persecuted. We don't know exactly, specifically all the details, but we get a clue in just a couple passages at the beginning of, of chapter 5. There's a very harsh warning given to a people referred to only as the rich or the rich people. Uh, and there's been some research into that. And what it seems like it was happening is that there was a lot of very shady business deals, a lot of business deals going through with the government and with this that were causing the Christians to be in a state of severe poverty. And what was happening is they were using these shady business tactics to take land and possessions away from the poor, making the poor even poorer. And they were most likely also being persecuted spiritually as well. So what we see is we have this this group of Christians whose James is writing to that is downhearted. They are downcast. They're crying out, when, when, when? And it's in this light that James writes this passage of the letter to them. So let's turn to James chapter 5, starting in verse 7. We're going to read through verse 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen The purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Heavenly Father, what a blessing it is to read your word. The very power of salvation in your word. Lord, I pray that you would open our ears and soften our hearts. That we would not simply hear your message. That we may receive your message today. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. James is telling them to be patient. He's saying, I know that it's bad. I know that you're suffering, but be patient. And I want to, before we go too much further, I want to focus on one statement that he has here at the end because everything is built off of that. And it's the second half of verse 11. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. The purpose of the Lord is the very foundation upon which James tells them they can be patient. The purpose of the Lord. What is the purpose of the Lord? The the greatest explanation of that comes to us in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. The purpose of God. If you continue to read through Romans chapter 8, I'm going to summarize what the purpose of the Lord is. The purpose of God in the lives of those who love him. It's that we would know Jesus, that we would grow in Jesus, and that we would live eternally with Jesus. This is the purpose 
of God. This is the purpose that the Lord has for His people, for us. We can trace this plan all throughout history of the Bible. How God was working and transforming His people to bring peace to this world. To bring love to this world. We have a God who's in charge. We have a God who is sovereign. Who has a plan. And James knows this. And in this passage, James is telling us, because our God is sovereign, we are able to be patient. Because our God is sovereign, we are able to be patient. And on that foundation, James gives us three explanations or three ways that patience can be lived out in our life. Patience does not hurry. Patience does not quit. And patience does not grumble. So let's turn to this now, this this notion of patience does not hurry. This is a great passage to preach from because there's sermon illustrations written right into it. I can just kind of build off of the sermon illustrations that James is giving me here. And the first one is like a farmer. He says, look to the farmer who waits for the precious fruits of the earth until he receives the early and the late rains. One thing that a farmer knows is he understands that harvest only happens in the proper season. A farmer is a wonderful example of someone who exhibits patience. The context of this area is that this is a very dry, arid um, place of the world, but they lived off of things that they could grow. So it was very important that the seasons of rain did what they were supposed to do. The farmer was very dependent upon the first season of rain. And this was the rain that he had to plant the seeds right before the season of rain so that that rain can nourish these seeds. To allow these seeds to be able to start to take root. To establish the foundation. But then he had to wait. He had to wait for the next season of rain that would happen right before the harvest. He needed to wait for both of those. Another thing that the farmer does is the farmer knows that the harvest can only come in certain seasons, as I said. If a farmer grows impatient and begins to pluck up the plants as soon as he seems green, he's not going to have a harvest. But not only can he not pluck it up as soon as he sees the green, but there is a long time before he sees anything happening. But he trusts that that seed is doing what it's supposed to do. That it is growing. And in time, it will grow. Patience is like a farmer who waits to harvest his crop until the proper season. But it's important to understand also that patience is not an excuse for laziness. As I, as I kind of, in, in my younger days, you know, when I was 30 or something, I would look at times of my life and I'd be like, wow, that was a time that I was being really, really patient. Now that I'm much older and wiser, 32, I realize that that was not patience. That was actually just laziness. I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't working. I wasn't toiling. I wasn't struggling through things. I was just being lazy. If you were to look at a field that a a farmer has planted, you might make the assumption that he's being lazy. So there's nothing happening in that field. It's just a field of dirt. But a farmer is not lazy. A farmer is patient. The farmer toils for months 
without any evidence of the future crop he will harvest. There's a long time that goes into this, this idea of harvesting a crop. There's a lot going on beneath the surface that we can't understand, but we trust is working. But he has to continue to till the land. He has to continue to pull away the weeds. He has to make sure that they're getting the correct amount of sunlight or water. And James encourages the people in this way, and he tells them that there will be seasons when you will not see fruit. Therefore, you must establish your heart. I love the way that he says that. Establish your heart. What must a farmer do to his soil before he can even plant the seed? He must prepare it. If the ground is hard, he has to break it up. He has to till it. He has to make sure that things can grow in it. And then he has to gather it up and make sure it's in the right rows. Make sure that the right seeds go into the right soil. He has to rotate his crops during the off-season so that the, the, the soil is not stripped of all its nutrients. A farmer has to do an incredible amount of work before he even plants the seed. He has to establish the land to be able to receive the seed. This is how it is with our hearts. It's easy to be patient when things are going our way. It's easy to be patient when things are going according to our own plan. We have to establish our hearts in these times by feeding on Scripture, by feeding on prayer, by feeding on the fellowship of the body of Christ. We have to have the nourishment in our soul before the suffering happens in order to not be crushed. Like a farmer must prepare the soil, we too must be preparing our hearts off-season and on-season with the nourishment of the Word of God. The farmer also has to have the right tools and the resources. He must prepare. He must establish the soil. We must establish our hearts. So patience does not hurry. It takes its time. Likewise, patience does not quit. Especially patience does not quit in the face of suffering. Like I said before, it's easy to appear patient when things are going well. It's when things aren't going well that our true establishment in our heart begins to be revealed. Our patience is tested when we begin to experience adversity and suffering. James knows that this is a difficult thing. James understands that this is a difficult, much easier said than done. So he gives us some wonderful examples of people who were able to be faithful, who were able to be patient, to be content in the face of persecution. And he talks about the prophets. One of the prophets is, uh, an example is Daniel. We know Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. Daniel was thrown in the lion's den not because he was a bad person, not because he was bad at his job, not because he was offending or he was doing things that made people angry, except for being faithful to God. In fact, Daniel was extremely good at his, at his job. He was so upright that people had to manipulate the law in order to get him in trouble. 
But all the while, Daniel stayed faithful. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, some of the men that were also with him, they also were upright. They also established their hearts with the Word of God so that when the time came and they were told that they had to relent, they had to give up their worship of God and worship an idol. And they said, we will not do that. We know that God's way is the right way. In the face of being thrown into a furnace, it was only because they had been establishing their hearts that they were able to stand up that way. Of course, we know that Daniel was not devoured in the lion's den. God saved him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not burned up in the furnace. God saved them. It's important to understand, though, that being patient is not simply how it appears on the outside. Because then we get this example of Job. Okay, Job was another very famous example of an upright man, a man who had his faith in God, who put his trust in the sovereignty of God. And through circumstances, everything that Job had was taken away. His family, his house, his health, everything was taken from him. And the passage tells us that he continued to have his faith in God. He continued to put his trust in God's sovereign plan. That doesn't mean that he didn't cry out. Throughout it all, Job remained faithful to God. That doesn't mean that he didn't struggle with doubt and frustration. True patience isn't simply putting your best face forward. It doesn't mean pretending that nothing is wrong. This is another trap that we can fall into. We think we're called to be patient. We're called to be content in God. But I know my heart is not content, but I have to look like it is. It can be very easy to put up a good face, to pretend that everything is going great, but on the inside you're crumbling. On the inside you're empty because you have nothing left. You cannot pretend anymore. Patience doesn't mean pretending nothing's wrong. Patience requires honesty. Patience requires wrestling with Scripture and crying out to God. If you look at the Psalms, much of the Psalms is people, faithful people of God, doing that very thing. You are not sovereign. We are not sovereign. God is sovereign. Of course we're going to struggle. Of course we're going to feel empty when we try to do it on our own. We have to cry out to God. Patience does not quit, even in the face of suffering. Patience does not hurry. Patience does not quit. And finally, patience does not grumble. My wife accuses me of grumbling all the time. She calls me the grumpy old man, and I kind of am. You know, I am 32, like I said. But patience does not grumble. And there are two ways that we grumble. The first is that we grumble with other people. When things frustrate us, when things stop going our way, when the plan that we have established for our life is broken, we look for things to blame. And usually when we're looking for things to blame, we find people to blame. It's never my fault. It's someone else's fault. 
This is what was happening with the Christians to whom James wrote this letter. Now, they had a legitimate case of people treating them poorly. But what we find out from other passages here is that they started to take that out on one another. They began to grumble with one another so that spiritual fellowship was broken off. So not only was there a physical problem, not only was there an emotional problem, but we seem to see a spiritual decay within the fellowship with one another. This made me think of something that I experience almost every year when I take the senior high ministry group to Yakima. Every year we get to go on the Yakima mission trip, which you've heard lots and lots about. Thank you for everyone who has supported the team. But we go out there, and we go out to a very harsh environment. It is in the middle of a desert, a real legitimate desert. The temperatures get up into, I think it's been up to 106, 107 when we were out there. It is incredibly dry. You drink more water than you think is humanly possible, and you get dirtier than you ever thought was possible. Then we go back to the place where we're staying, and there is one shower for the guys and one shower for the girls. And when I say shower, I use that term very loosely. I think more would be a rapid succession of drips slowly coming in. I think that's the best description of this shower. But it becomes your lifeline. You can't wait to get into that shower. Again, there's only one for the guys, one for the girls. So every year something happens. The guys have a great system. It's show up, take the shower, first come, first serve. The girls are much more civilized. They have a plan. Every year, one poor soul takes it upon themselves to establish a shower schedule. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And what happens is this poor soul says, we're going to establish a schedule. You have this amount of time for this shower. You show up at this amount of time. We're going to go in order. Everyone will have a wonderful shower, and it'll work great. Of course, it doesn't work out. Someone takes a couple of minutes too long in their shower, which makes the next person get start have to be late. And then someone skips and doesn't show up for their time, for so someone else fills that spot, which then causes someone else to feel like it's unfair because you get what I'm going at. What ends up happening is utter chaos, and eventually it's thrown out the window angrily. But it's an interesting phenomenon phenomena that happens. All of a sudden, you start seeing a lot of bickering. You start seeing a lot of hurt feelings. You hear grumbling. Because what has happened? We begin, the girls begin to look for an excuse for why they feel wronged. And when they feel wronged, they try to blame someone else, which causes a breakdown in the fellowship. And what has happened now? Now, all of a sudden, the frustration is not with the situation. The frustration is not with the heat and the discomfort. The frustration is not with the, bad, the, the weak water pressure. All of a sudden, the frustration is with one another. And we get angry with one another. This is what happens. This is what grumbling is and does. We lose our focus on what's important, and we begin to fight our battles amongst ourselves. And why do we do that? Grumbling looks to blame someone or something else for the situation. Grumbling does not look internally. Grumbling leads to disharmony and broken relationships. But there is more than meets the eye when people begin to grumble with one another. 
what's going on here. When we begin to grumble with one another, eventually, usually very quickly, it turns to grumbling with God or grumbling at God. And this passage gives us a very stern warning to be associated with this loving promise. Look at verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. There is a stern warning against grumbling. If we look back to the Israelites, we get an example of what's going on here. As I mentioned before, the Israelites began to grumble. They grumbled against each other and they grumbled against God. The best example of this was after the Israelites had just been rescued by God out of slavery in Egypt. They had been in slavery, they had been in persecution for many years, and God brought them out. He delivered them as he promised. But then they get out in the desert, and things aren't still going their way. They don't get the comfort that they thought they'd get. They didn't get the security that they thought they'd get. They start complaining, we're hungry. We're tired. And they start to grumble to the point where they even said it was better back in slavery. God, you messed up. You should have left us there. They begin to grumble against God. If we read the passage of what happens... This grumbling had a very extreme effect. It had a very extreme consequence. When God saved them out of Egypt, He promised them the promised land. He said, I will bring you to a place and it will be yours. The promised land. The people lost that sight. They began to distrust that God was actually going to bring them there. They began to mistrust that God was actually good. And they began to grumble. And because they grumbled against God, God told them, all of you will not enter the promised land. An entire generation of Israelites did not enter the promised land because they began to grumble against God. Now that is an extremely stiff penalty. So what is it about this grumbling? Grumbling against God is ultimately a rejection of the sovereignty of God. Of God. Grumbling against God is a rejection that his plan is good and that his plan will be carried out. This is what happens to us. When I look back at situations in my life, there were times when I cried out to God and I said, You made a mistake. This isn't what's good for me. I wanted something else. How could you allow me to get this instead? I wasn't trusting in the promise of Romans 8.28. I was not trusting that God was good. Over and over and over, God kept telling me, just wait, be patient, I have a plan. And I would say, you don't have a plan. Your plan is not good. Every time, God is faithful. Every time, God's promises came true. We live in a world that is broken. We live in a world that seems like utter chaos. 
We live in a world where the decisions of people very far off affect us very greatly. We think there cannot be a plan in this. There cannot be an ultimate goal in all of this. And we yearn for a time where there will be no more pain, when there will be no more suffering, when there will be no more hurt. This is when we are called to establish our hearts. Dear brothers and sisters, this is truth. What we have here is true. The wisdom of the world disagrees with this. But this is truth. We look at our lives and we think, my parents did this and it irreparably damaged me. Or my teachers did this. Or the government did this. Or my boss did this. And we begin to forget that God is sovereign. There is no such thing as accidents. There's no such thing. For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Everything that happens in your life is for you to know Jesus, grow in Jesus, and to ultimately dwell and live with Jesus eternally. We have to grab hold of that promise. It is only when we are truly living on that foundation and trusting in our sovereign God are we equipped to be patient. This passage reminds us Jesus is coming back. It seems like there is so much in this world where evil goes unpunished and righteousness goes unrewarded. But Jesus is coming back. And when Jesus comes, everything will be set right. Wrongs will be punished. Righteousness will be rewarded. And for those who have trusted in the sovereignty of God, they will be, they will be home for eternally. Where are you not being patient in your life? What area in your life are you not willing to give up to the sovereign plan of God? Where do you feel like God's gotten it wrong? Is God telling you, Not yet. Be patient. I have a plan. He does. He has a plan. It's perfect and it's good. Because our God is sovereign, we're able to be patient. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for all that you have done for us. I thank you that you are willing to send your Son to die for us when we were unworthy. That you came to die for us when we hated you. Lord, I pray that you would make it very real to our lives that you have a plan. And that your plan is perfect. And it's good. And it can only serve to glorify you and help us understand you better. Allow us to establish our hearts in the Word, in the sacraments, and in the church, and in fellowship so that we can be equipped to be patient and we can enable others to be patient. Most importantly, Lord, I pray that you would make Jesus Christ the most important thing in our lives, that we would constantly fall to our knees and look to the cross and be comforted. Allow us to sing praises to you when the world is crumbling around us because we know that you have a plan 
and it is perfect. Be with us today. In your name we pray. Amen.